here today was the end of the story. And we're going to walk into a time where we get to see boldness proclaimed. And it is really my privilege to do so. Before we get going, I want to encourage you, the stuff that you heard going on before service, if you've been here for any length of time, you understand this is how we worship. This is how we worship. We don't come together just to pray and then just to sing and then to hear truth proclaimed in God's word. It is all together. Would you agree? And it is usually a weekly thing. There's not a day that goes by that one of the elders isn't coming to the church for something and seeing people meeting or hearing testimony as we heard proclaimed today. And I want to encourage you, as you go out, you'll see today this book, God's Space. God's Space books are out there now. It is the book that we're going to be leading through with this study plan and guide. It's also out there. It's on the front over there. This is going to be our gospel conversation series that we walk into through the summer. So today I have the privilege of giving the message. It's going to be in Acts 7, and we're going to get there eventually. This is the first of three messages while Pastor Doug and his family are away getting some much-needed rest. So next week you'll Brian talk about something, and I'm going to talk again on June 5th, and then we're going to move into these gospel conversations. So you have some time. Please pick up the book, pick up the study guide, be familiar with it. We did this in 2016, and for those of you who participated, I will tell you it was a radically different church then than it is today. Radically different world then than it is today. And I can't think of a better way to engage than what we're going to be doing here. So I took some notes as I was listening to people smarter than myself talk up here. John had said in his opening, be willing to confront sin. Are we men and women that are willing to confront sin where we see it? Are we willing to believe? They may not believe is what the Irish elk, right? But we believe. I'm going to read something to you from Booker T. Washington. He was quoted as saying, A lie doesn't become truth, wrong doesn't become right, and evil doesn't become good just because it's accepted by a majority. Right? Think about that for a second. Now, we're going to be talking through, like I said, this, what I've titled, an apologia of righteousness. We're going to be talking through what it means to give a defense for the hope that resides inside of you. Now, if you think about this, there are times that I'm going to start in uh, just a quick story about Nathan. Nathan the prophet confronting King David. Now, Nathan was empowered by God to come to King David and confront him about the sin he had with Bathsheba. And in that moment, he gives a powerful recollection of the sin that occurred. And, and if you remember the story, right, he's talking about a man with some sheep. And he says, well, is it right that this man does it? And King David, you remember what he said? He said, that man should be killed. Bring him here. And then what does Nathan say? You are that man to King David. You are that man. What does it take to have an apologia of righteousness. Well, before we kick off, I want to encourage you, turn on to the back of your bulletin, you'll see talking point one. Talking point one, you can see on the screen, in addition to you being saved, how have you seen the gospel displayed and work in those around you? So I just want to ask some questions. How have you seen the gospel work around you? I think it's kind of redundant after hearing what's going on in our church, but what are some other ways just quickly, shout out some different ways that you guys have seen the gospel work around you. 
Gospel's not working around us. I disagree. Okay, so what Scott had said, the Starrett's being able to go to Mexico, right? And if you're not aware, there is a testimony sheet up front by the foundation's table over there, by our connect table. You should pick up some of what they're doing at Ponte Vida. Stephanie. Interesting. Stephanie said, when we share, we see the lives of others change. And what, what I was reading in, um, in the foundations class that started on June 1st, is going to be more of an apologetic look at the basis for faith. I encourage you to join me as I lead us through the summer on Wednesday nights at 6 o'clock. And the, the book that's going to be with that is the book Tactics by Greg Kokel. And to Stephanie's point, Kokel makes this, this analogy very clear. He says a lot of times when you're engaging with people, sometimes it's like, you're throwing arrows at a stone, and it just bounces off. But sometimes the people in the room that most need to hear it are not the ones you're referring to. It's the soft hearts in the room that hear the testimony of a righteous Irish elk willing to stand up in gentleness and in truth. Okay, so, so we've seen these different ways where the gospel has been moving. And like any good class, I would think that you'd want to know the terms. We'd want to know what we're talking about before we actually talk about it. So let's define some terms. Let's define the term apologia. All right, apologia. So apologia, it means a formal, written, or spoken defense of one's opinion or conduct. So it's a formal, written, or spoken defense of one's opinion or conduct. Now, with Stephen, he's going to be our main protagonist today, right? Stephen He's going to be highlighted through this. But Stephen's apologia was all about the righteousness of Jesus Christ. In fact, if you remember the story, he was already doing the works which brought him to attention. And we're going to get there. But if you think about who he's going against, the antagonist group are the Sanhedrin, the council. So what was their apologia? Well, their apologia wasn't a righteous defense. And it certainly was of just one's opinion of conduct, they were looking for justification for what they already wanted to do. And you'll see that. And so isn't that interesting at times, right? When you read God's word, so often we can take out of it, we can exegete his truth, but a lot of times we can eisegete, we can put in what we want it to say. Do you guys understand what I'm talking about? I'm guilty of that. I'm sure I'm not the only one. At times when, when you feel like, you have a situation and you're like, well, I know that God's word says this. And you draw upon the promise of God's word. And then you start building entire theologies on that and said, this is the theology. This is the power. This is the truth. Guys, you don't have to redo it. It was done once perfectly. But you have to believe it. And so you're going to see what happens when Stephen believes it. So the Sanhedrin, they... They hated the idea that power is being taken from them. This is the whole point. The Sanhedrin were, if you don't know who they were, just a quick overview, they were the ruling council of political and religious leaders that was left in place by Rome. So at this time, Rome is the world power. Rome is setting the tone across the entire civilized world. And so what Rome did, everyone did. And Rome allowed this group, these Jews to hang out in Jerusalem, and they can just take care of their people. Now, you understand, for a group of people that had very, very little power, for Rome to give them this, this is what they clung on to. And can you see how this changed their identity? They became 
that power. They became aggressive to defend what they felt was their right. And so you start thinking about who they were. They weren't going to let anybody just come in and take that power from them, were they? Absolutely not. So I want to draw your attention to the screen. There's a, a quote here from Charles Spurgeon that I found that I really like. Think about the gospel for a second. The word of God is like a lion. You don't have to defend a lion. All you have to do is let the lion loose, and the lion can defend itself. Right? Amen, Amen indeed. If you haven't heard that quote, I would definitely hang on to that. So many times, so many times, we want to do the gospel and. Jesus and. We really do. We want to say, well, you know what? Jeff's got a great story about being a cop. I'm going to tell my great story. I'll sprinkle on a little Jesus. Everybody will feel great. You won't really go deep. We won't change hearts, but that's okay. But that's okay. Or you can sit in prayer. You can read God's truth. You can ask him because you're seeking. And then when he knocks on the door of your heart and comes in, he reveals his truth. Right? Jesus is the lion of Judah. And that quote is especially real. So I want to draw your attention to our thought of the day on the bulletin. If you look, these are inside your bulletins here, the notes. The question that I came up with today when I was thinking about this message, I believe encapsulates this. Are you willing to give your life to stand for something? Are you willing to give your life to stand for something? So open your Bible, go to Acts 4. Go to Acts 4. Now that we spend a little time in the Old Testament, if you spend any time around here, you'll know that we connect the Old and New Testament because it's God's one story delivered over the beginning of time. So while you're getting to Acts 4, I want you to think about that, that thought. Are you willing to give your life and stand for something? There's going to be another quote on the screen from a man named Victor Hugo. I want you to take a look up there. There's one thing stronger than all the armies in the world, wrote Victor Hugo, and that's an idea whose time has come. This is the time. And for the Acts Church, this time, this was the, the salt and the light, right, being poured out of the Jerusalem salt shaker. This was the time. The church is getting ready to explode, and we're going to see what happens when an idea's time comes. Now, you can, you can kill people, you can destroy civilizations, you can destroy buildings, but you can't destroy an idea. And that's what the Sanhedrin, those rulers, really were afraid of. Remember, Romans 1, 16, right? For the power of the gospel to God's salvation for all who believe, this is God's dynamite, right? This is God's dynamite. You're gonna have this explosion that's gonna take place at the end. So if you look at your notes, our first training truth, persecution for your faith. I want to lead you through a little bit about the book of Acts. The book of Acts starts off, it's the uh, explanation and explosion of the church. But in the first part, in Acts 1, the, they're commissioned to go out and be the church. But if you look at Acts 4, where I have you, in verse 8, okay? Verse 8. Our first, well, not really the first, but one of the... Um, most bold proclamations of Peter begins here. Verse 8, Then Peter, filled with the Holy Spirit, said to them, Rulers and elders of the people, for on trial today for the benefit done to a sick man, as to how this man has been made well, let it be known to all of you and to all the people of Israel that by the name of Jesus Christ of Nazarene, whom you crucified, whom God raised from the dead, 
By this name, this man stands here before you in good health. He is the stone which was rejected by you, Jesus, the builders, but which became the chief cornerstone. And I think we all know this verse, right? Then there's salvation in no one else. For there's no other name under heaven that's been given among men by which we must be saved. And with that, if you watch any kind of uh, sports events or uh, fights, that is the opening salvo right there. He is boldly standing up and he is attacking that power group, okay? So you continue on to verse 15, and this is going to be kind of quick. I'm going to take you through. So David, keep up. Verse 15, when they ordered them to leave the council, they began to confer with one another. Now, Peter and John are there. They're giving their testimony, their apology of righteousness, and now the council's forced to deal with this. They kick them out because they don't know what to do with what they just heard. And so now they're getting upset. And so they start arguing with each other. They figure out, well, we can't really, they didn't break any laws. We can't do anything. In verse 21, when they threaten them further, right? So they bring them back in. They threaten them. I can only imagine the threats that were said, something like, Dear kind sir, if you had a moment, would you please stop saying things about that Jesus guy? Probably something a little worse than that, right? And they're threatening them, and they're, and they're doing all kinds of things. And they left glorifying God, it said, on the account of the persecution that they faced. So we continue from Acts 4, and you go to the end, right? Peter and John, they go back to the apostles, and it recounts in verse 29 through verse 31, I'll summarize, that when they came back, it said, Lord, take note of their threats. Again, they're not trying to get redeemed for their own sakes. Lord, take note of their threats and grant that your bondservants may continue to speak with boldness and all confidence while you extend your hand. And then in verse 21, when they prayed, the place where they gathered together was shaken and they were all filled with the Holy Spirit and began to speak the word of God with boldness. <laughs> There's something to be said about speaking God's word. Would you agree? And, you know, I love the Irish elk thing. I have not seen that before. When Brian sent that out, he said, boy, this is going to be great because Stephen's really that Irish elk. And I thought, if you're filled with the Holy Spirit, so are you. You just wonder, like, do you think an Irish elk, just to play off this, and this obviously is not in my notes, but I would say, do you think an Irish elk walks around like this all day, just puts his head down? No. There is literally the definition of majesty is regalness, right? Standing up above everyone else. This Irish elk would portray and cut such an image that no one will be able to avoid it. And then what are we doing? When you walk into a room, you don't need to scream and shout at people. What you need to do is give them grace and truth because a lion doesn't need you to defend itself. Amen? Let's go to Acts 5 now as we keep moving. Let me, uh, let me talk a little bit, draw you to verse 27. And in verse 27 through 34, now this is all by way of setting the stage for what's coming, which is why it's important to take time talking about this. Verse 27, when they had brought them, they stood them before the council. Now, again, they're, Peter and, they're being brought again. The apostles now are being brought before the council again because did they stop preaching with boldness? Absolutely not. They turned up the fire, right? So they're brought in front of the council again. And then they, they yelled at him, we told you not to do it, kind people. And then Peter and the apostles answered in verse 29, and I love this. He said, we must obey God rather than men. The God of our fathers, verse 30, raised up Jesus, whom you put to death by hanging him on a cross. So he's already saying, I'm going to talk about what I know to be truth, 
And you can just listen, you can agree or not agree, but we have to obey God, not man. Can we say that? He goes on and he says in verse 32, we are witnesses of these things. In the back of our church, as you leave today, you'll see it says, we shall, you shall be my witnesses. That's what they're talking about. We're the witnesses of these things and so is the Holy Spirit whom God has given to those who obey him. We don't have the luxury to pick and choose when we'll be a faithful witness. We don't. Because the Holy Spirit in the book here says that he is also our witness to that. And so to the testimony of truth, we have to stand confident. Now this is interesting. If you look 33 and 34. But when they heard this, they were cut to the quick and intended to kill them. And you're going to see this play out. You'll see it play out in the Old Testament a lot. And in the New Testament, what happens to people when their argument is destroyed? Well, I'll give you two options. One is that they just roll over and go, wow, that was really a compelling, apologetic, logic-based argument. And I'm grateful that you've corrected the error of my ways. That would be one such way. And I, but I'll tell you, as a cop, for 20 years. Let me tell you what the other way that I see all the time. Violence. When people get destroyed, they get angry. When they get angry, they respond in anger and they want to kill things, right? They want to hurt people. They want to say, well, forget it. I'm just not going to deal with you, so I'm just going to kill you. And if I kill you, I can erase your argument. But remember what we said about ideas. You can kill the messenger, but you cannot kill the message. So Gamaliel, who was Saul's teacher, if you remember Doug a couple weeks ago, he talked about Saul and talked about Gamaliel. Gamaliel was on this council. He was a leading Pharisee. He was a teacher of Israel. He actually says in verse 34, but a Pharisee named Gamaliel, teacher of the law, respected by all the people, stood up in the council. Now this is about 70, 75, 76 people that would be here at any given time. He gave orders to put the men outside for a short time. Now, they said they wanted to kill them in front of these guys. Gamaliel was like, wait a minute. Let's have a quick powwow to figure out what we're going to do. Are we really going to kill them? And then he goes on to talk about this, this idea. He says, essentially going through the rest of five, if you kill these men, all you're going to do is create a fervor and an excitement that will make more people want to rebel against us. But we don't want to do that, brothers. Let's do this instead. Let's just let them burn out. Well, you know, they're burn out. Everybody else burn out. He gives an example of a guy. He led a revolt. Next thing you knew, he said, ah, you know what? I don't want to do this anymore. I'm really paraphrasing God's word, so you want to be careful with that. But read for yourself verses 33 through 40, okay? So in verse 40, they call the apostles back in. It doesn't just say Peter and John, oh, that's the inference. Here's verse 40. It says, they, the Sanhedrin, took his, Gamaliel's advice. And after calling the apostles in, they flogged them. Because remember, you got to be violent still. Right, you got to prove that even though you beat me intellectually, I can still be tougher than you. Right? They flogged them and ordered them not to speak in the name of Jesus. And they released them because that's worked out so well so far. Right? Absolutely not. Absolutely not. So that's verse, or chapters 4 and chapters 5, and that leads us now into chapter 6. Chapter 6 is important. I'm going to spend a little more time on chapter 6. So if you go to chapter 6, we're going to take you to verse 5. Now, leading up to this, there was a complaint. Hellenistic Jews. Does anybody know what Hellenistic Jews are? I had to study it a little bit. Hellenistic Jews are Greek-speaking, Greek-worshipping Jews. Think of like Helen of Troy, right? So Hellenistic Jews were this, this different 
sect of the synagogue, but they were extremely powerful, and there was a lot of them. And sometimes you'll see in the Bible, diaspora Jews, right? The diaspora, that actually is a Greek word. It means scattered. So going back to the history, if you remember, the scattered Greek-speaking Jews come back. They are uh, convicted by the Messiah, and they're worshiping along with the Hebrew Jews, right? But there's some of these people that are extremely upset. So they make this argument, and it's not a bad argument. Hey, you know what? You're ignoring the widows, it says. Widows in verse 1, widows are being overlooked in the daily service of food. Now that is a, if you read that in isolation, you go, well, that's a very valid point. But you have to read the context of Acts 4, 5, and 6, right? Remember, context is king. What does it say? What does it mean? How does it apply? And what's your context? And you read the context of that in verse 1, you think, oh, okay. So now, knowing the culture and the history, what we've learned is that these Greek-speaking Hellenistic Jews that hate Christians need to find a way to make an argument to the apostles because they realize they're not shutting up. They realize you can beat them, you can flog them, you can threaten to kill them. They're not stopping. So they make what sounds like, and it is, a very rational plea, right? And I just want to encourage you, there are so many times, and it's not a compromise, but it is a deception. When someone will, will phrase something with a kernel of truth or something that sounds good, but their motives are impure, right? We got to be on the lookout for that. That's what it says. But the apostles say, okay, well, it's not good that we should just serve tables. Why don't you guys pick people? Pick seven people. So the statement found approval by the whole congregation in verse 5. What they're saying is the apostles are being smart. If you read the names of the people, and they first chose Stephen, read the names. They're all Greeks. They're all the Greek-speaking Christians. If you, the context of this is really cool. The apostles, they're not dumb. Like, all right, well, you, you want to have this uh, different path and this different way? Well, I'll give you your own people, and these are the ones they're going to serve. And so, yeah, they went, okay, well, that's great. Thank you. And so now the Greek-speaking Jews are the ones that are dealing with these Greek-speaking Christians. And so Stephen, they talk about him a little bit. In verse 8, Stephen, full of grace and power, was performing wonders and signs among the people. But some men, in verse 9, from what was called the synagogue of the freedmen. So this is that Hellenistic, this is a more aggressive, more zealot group of these Hellenistic Jews. Or, yeah, the Hellenistic Jews. They were arguing with Stephen. And look at verse 10. They were unable to cope with the wisdom and the spirit with which he was speaking. What do we know is going to happen next? Are they going to go, gee, thank you, Stephen. Again, you've taught me the error of my ways. No. They're going to get angry, and they're going to get mad, and they want to do violence. So what do they do? Verse 11, they've secretly induced men to say. Now they start lying. And then 12, they stir up the people, the elders. They put forth false witnesses. Now these people are going to the council. Again, third time that we've seen so far to say, all right, now I want you to bring this guy forward. And so that sets the stage for what matters. The, the spark that brought Stephen to the council, that began from the example he saw in Peter, right? John, the rest of the apostles, what had happened when they prayed in the spirit and when the building shook and when signs were being done and Stephen's raising himself up and he is proclaiming God's grace and truth and wisdom in power. That's what he sees. Now is that spark is going to cause the explosion of the church, which is exactly God's plan. So take heart, okay? Take heart. If you're being persecuted, if you're being persecuted, it's for a reason. Verse 10, they don't have any reply. They have no reply, like we talked about, to a strong apologia. So 
There's a verse, 2 Corinthians 3.18, if you put that on the screen. You can see, you can read the verse there, and with unfailed face, I'm going to read it. Beholding as in a mirror the glory of the Lord, being transformed into the same image from glory to glory, just as the Lord, our spirit. So I can tell you right now that there have been many times where as a cop for 20 years, I could tell you the magnitude of that concept, being transformed and seeing God's glory every single day. And as a cop, the idea of our question of the day, right, are you willing to stand, give your life to stand for something? As a cop, you risk your life every day. You really do. You really, but you don't think about that. You think about doing your job. But then in the moment, you could die. And every police officer, every police officer in America comes to grips with that reality at some point. But here's the thing. Every day you risk your life for someone else. You risk your life for the oath to the Constitution, the oath to your state, but you're going to go to battle for the people next to you, right? You're going to give your life for the man or woman next to you, some of which you may not even know. And so as a Christian cop, every day provides new ways for persecution for your faith. It really does. Not just the physical, but the mental, the spiritual, and the emotional. And so I can tell you now that I balance my life as a Christian first and officer second on the job. And so what I believe I tell people is truth. And the truth comes from the gospel. And I, I've had many times where I, I called a traffic stop ministry. And I've been able to record sharing the gospel with people because the Lord just tells you to do it. And you do it and you see lives changed, right? Even on a traffic stop. Amen to that. And I can tell you that when people hear God's truth, it doesn't matter the color of their skin, it doesn't matter the politics, it doesn't matter their profession, my obligation is to stand firm, right? I know the truth, you know the truth. And so do you stand firm like Stephen is prepared to do? Because when you stand firm, you don't just project yourself, you project the Irish elk of the Messiah behind you. And people don't know what to do with that. We've seen it already. They don't know what to do with a strong argument, a strong defense. Stephen stood firm because of who he was and why he loved Jesus. He was willing to give everything. So that leads us into Acts 7. So go to your Bibles in Acts 7. He was going to talk about the mission of his master, so let's get to it. Verse 1, chapter 7. I want to point out, this is the only question. The only question the council asked Stephen the entire time. Now remember, they're bringing him to account for something, right? No, they're not. This is the only question they're asking, and they're not even asking because they care about the response. They're asking because they want to see what ways they can justify their violent behavior, which is coming. That's what's happening. So if you look at our, our training truth, number one, you, we, we suffer persecution for our faith. That leads into what we're going to now, our training truth number two, which is, in the, is the gospel on the move? So persecution for your faith is the gospel on the move. And that's to take us through the end pretty much of, well, it goes through the end of chapter 7. So Stephen goes through this whole history, and it was talked about earlier, of the patriarchs. He talks about Abraham, talks about Joseph, Moses, Joshua, David, and Solomon. He talks about the history lesson, and if you were to read some of this, and I encourage you, this is a daily reading today, the Greek Jews lecturing a pure Jew. This is where, oh, hugely disrespectful because they weren't willing to give up their power. So you have this Greek Jew, Stephen, lecturing the pure blood Jews, right, on the history of their people. And, by the way, how all, the, all through the history, the government and the people would constantly subvert their own patriarchs. 
Steve is pointing out the people that you say you revered, you in the government, kept on stifling. You kept on hindering their progress. And then he points out in verse 18 and 19, if you look there, I'm going to read this for a second. This is after Joseph, verse 18. This is 7, 18. Until there arose another king over Egypt who knew nothing about Joseph. In 19, it was he who took shrewd advantage of our race. It's important. He's including himself, right? And mistreated our fathers so that they would expose their infants and would not survive. This is a way that the government was trying to exterminate this people group. You have to understand that. But he's pointing this out to them, and they are getting more and more irritated. He goes on to talk about Moses, right? And we heard some of that at the beginning. And in verse 31, moving down the script a little bit, Moses saw it, talking about the bush. He marveled at the sight. He approached, looked more closely, and there came the voice of the Lord, which again, he is now equating himself as a Hellenistic, Greek-speaking Jew to Moses. And John, I thought, did a good job pointing that out talking about this is a holy spot. Take your sandals off. And then 35, this Moses, whom they disowned, throwing it right back on the council again, whom they disowned, and he just keeps on going. He's not giving up. He's standing firm. And in verse 39, it says, our fathers were unwilling to be obedient to him. Now, think about that. God tells Moses to remember and to serve him Moses goes forth. The people of the way believe in Moses and believe that God sent him, and he's telling him flat out, you guys ignored him as well. And he's saying our, our, our. So he's connecting that they're both the same group. It all shows that the Jews were, have a hist- they had a history of trusting themselves, of fixing their own problems, and not trusting God. Now, this is obviously a huge problem, and Stephen does well pointing this out, his entire defense. So much so that I'm going to lead you into the second talking point. So turn your bulletin over. The second talking point is up on the screen here. I'm going to read it. Stephen highlights Jewish redemptive history through God and not man. That's important. Now, take a few minutes and write down some of God's markers in your life that have led you here today. And for the sake of time, I had something else in mind, but we're gonna, I'll just have you do this. Think about this as I continue to give the message. And even through the week, I want you to write down some of these markers and include them like my sweet sister Kim has all these different colored note cards. This is actually one of hers, right? And she has all these different things as markers in her Bible, as, as waypoints, all right? That's going to be super important. In fact, I would almost with as much intensity say, please go do that because you're going to want to have that prepared, especially when my brother Brian talks next week. It's going to be extremely important. So come prepared, okay? Because Stephen is setting these markers. And the markers that Stephen is setting is showing the council how they've sinned, how they've constantly dropped the ball for the people they say they represent, right? So getting back into the text, I'll tell you right now, as I look through the end of this, now I'm at 46, I just think, if you don't know what I'm talking about as I go quickly summarizing the history, if you don't know where you are in this redemptive history, I think Sean said it, if you don't know, if you think, well, Jeff, I'm not really down, that's not my history. Stephen said our more times than he said me or I. If you don't know this, come talk to me after church. 
come talk to one of the elders or talk to a deacon. Because if you don't know the power that comes from being a part of a group that is led by the king of kings, then you need to know that power. And not just for Sunday, but for every day that ends in a Y. Nailed it. Thank you. Verse 46, jump back into the text. He leads us out of Moses. He's talking about David. Now, if there's anybody that the Jews wanted to relate to, it was King David, right? He's a man after God's own heart. And they knew that. He goes right to him. He talks about David, Solomon, and then he goes to where Keegan had read before. You men who are stiff-necked in verse 51 and uncircumcised in heart and ears and always resisting the Holy Spirit, you're doing just as your fathers did. Now, I am not yelling, oddly enough, okay? Because I wanted you to hear this. Now, here's how Stephen would give this. You men who are stiff-necked, uncircumcised in heart and ears and always resisting the Holy Spirit, you're doing just as your fathers did. That's the zeal of a God that cannot be beat. Okay? And that's what he's talking about. So at this point, you know, they're not even hearing him at all. They're just seeing red. They're wondering who's going to take the first shot at Stephen. They don't even care what he's saying. All right? They don't even care what he's saying. And I won't go off too much on this, but if you are engaged in, we'll call it evangelism with someone, and your evangelism requires you to wear boxing gloves and put a mouthpiece in, just think about that. Okay? If people are so angry with your message that your constant doing this is getting you nowhere, who are you serving? Because I would say you're serving yourself. There is always another way, and it's not up to you. It's up to the Lord. Okay? So Stephen continues in moving near the end of this section. So now I'm looking at verse 54. Follow along with me in verse 54, okay? Now when they heard this, they were cut to the quick, and they began gnashing their teeth at him. So that's, if you think about the word picture, where else do we hear gnashing your teeth? Hell, lake of fire. They're literally bringing up the exact expression of violence from hell. It's pretty powerful, right? Verse 55, but being full of the Holy Spirit, he, Stephen, gazed intently into heaven and saw the glory of God and Jesus standing at the right hand of God. Doug had talked about this a couple weeks ago, the significance of Jesus standing versus sitting. And what a rabbi in that culture would do when he was making an important point would be to sit down because it would force everyone to keep their mouth shut and their eyes focused, right? So why does Jesus stand? Well, we're going to get to that. Stephen says in verse 56, Behold, I see the heavens opened up and the Son of Man standing at the right hand of God. This is extremely significant, not just because it took a baby's finger to push them over the edge of violence. No. The words that Stephen used, I see the Son of Man. The only time this was used ever in the New Testament was by Jesus. This is the only time from there on it's used. That phrase is not used in the history of the church again. Stephen is using God's spirit and saying, I see your Messiah, whom you crucified. I see him standing by God. So they don't know what to do with this, right? They don't know what to do with this. So they react, of course, how they're going to act. They cry out with a loud voice. Ready for this? Think about our culture. They cry out. They make a whole bunch of noise because they want to cancel you, right? They cover their ears. 
because they don't want to hear an apologia. And then they rush at him to do violence and silence him. They cancel you, they ignore you, and then they try to get rid of you. What's changed? Nothing's changed. Why would you think 10 years, 20 years, 100 years from now, it's going to change? It didn't change then, hasn't changed now. This church should excite you. You should know that we're standing at the precipice of another explosion that's going to happen for the gospel. Because that's the message. And when you think about what happens next, they drive him out of the city, they stone him. Oh, and the witnesses laid aside their robes at the feet of a, of a young guy named Saul. Extremely significant. So in verse 59 and 60, you spent a little time there. In the words that Stephen uses, think about the Lord's Prayer. Stephen commits his spirit to the Lord. He prays for his enemies. Luke says he just fell asleep. But we know as a Christian, right, and Luke knows this as he's writing it, that Christians, if they fall asleep, their body may die, but their spirit lives on, right? So this is, they think, the end. In verse 60, then falling on his knees, Stephen cries out with a loud voice, Lord, do not hold this sin against them. Oh, by the way, what's the sin? Somebody, somebody say it. What are, what are some thoughts? What is the sin that he's asking them not to hold against him? What do you think? Wow, we got some smart people in the room. Yeah, everybody's like saying the same thing. You guys are really solid on this. What they said was rejection of Jesus, blaspheming the Spirit. Okay? The sin that most people would say, oh, they, they, they were just mad. So they killed him. And murder's a sin. Oh, okay. That's not what he's asking forgiveness for. Kill the body. Fear the one who killed the soul. Stephen knows this. And so he's saying, forgive them that. Lord, they don't know their eyes are like the veiled face in 2 Corinthians 3 that we talked about. Sounds like Jesus speaking what Jan said, which is exactly what infuriated them to begin with. And if you remember, this is the council that wanted to, that helped the process to kill Jesus, right? So as we move into the last couple of verses, and we're going to be in chapter 8 now, right? The subject of persecution that began really since... Jesus walked the earth, is continued in eight. And so now the personality of Saul that we read about and the latter part of seven is really going to start manifesting. I'm going to tell you something too. There is an extremely close connection to the deacon Philip and Stephen. Both belong to those Hellenistic Christians of the seven that were chosen. And even the order, if you look back, the order of their names follows Stephen and Philip. And it is not a coincidence that Luke records what happens to them in order, okay? So look, on, look in your Bible on chapter 8, verse 1. Saul was in hearty agreement with putting them to death. And on that day, a great persecution began against the church in Jerusalem, and they were all scattered throughout the regions of Judea and Samaria, except the apostles. Well, <laughs> There's very, very significant words that are used there. On that day, so on that day is what Luke is recording as the explosive day when the persecuted church now embraced their role and was scattered, okay? On this day, you're gonna see, right? They, they go out. They're scattered throughout the region. So the diaspora is the word there again. And the statement scattered, right? That begins to give context 
to why Philip's mentioned. Remember Philip and the eunuch we're going to see next? That story is because of this scattering. They, they, they shout out, right? They kill Stephen. The church goes, whoa. The apostles say, go, bring his message. And the apostles don't leave. You know why the apostles originally didn't leave? It's context again. Who were the targets for this council's rage? It was the Greek-speaking Christians. The apostles were not. They were the pure Jews. So initially, they didn't flee. They knew where their path was. They commissioned everyone else, go. You go to the ends of the earth. Bring the message. We'll be there soon. And then it starts up, and the explosion begins, right? So if you look at verse 2 and 3, as we kind of move to the end of this, you're going to see here on your sheet, on your training truths, that persecution for your faith in Acts 4 through 6 is the gospel on the move, Acts 7, pretty much to the end. And now we talk about even when the gates of man stand in the way. Think about the phrase, right? Even when the gates of man stand in the way. And that's going to talk through Acts, the end of Acts 7 through 8, 4. So again, it is very important to remember who's speaking and through what power. He's standing firm, Stephen, because he understood who his teacher was. He understood who the voice of reason was that cried out in the wilderness. He understood where his explosive power came from. And because he saw the example of men go before him persecuted, he knew he was going to go there too. Look, you want to follow me? Pick up your cross. And let's get to getting, right? Think about what this means. The church now, it says, some devout men buried Stephen, and this is verse 2, and Saul began ravaging the church, entering house after house, dragging off the men and women that he would put into prison. In verse 4, this is where we're going to cap this, okay? And I want to I want to invite the music team up and those that are going to be handing out the trays for communion. If you guys want to start. These verses in 2 and 3, I mean, if you look at them, they contrast sharply with one another. The, the godly men came and buried Stephen and mourned deeply for him. And on the other hand, Saul began to destroy the entire church. And the word for destroy, which if, if you're into this word stuff, like I love the original language. I would encourage you, if you want to really read the power of the gospel, read the original language. This word is only used here in the New Testament. The word for destroy is the same word from Psalm, you can make a note of this, Psalm 79.13. And I would encourage you to read this. But Psalm 79.13 uh, talks about wild boars that destroy a vineyard. Wild boars that destroy a vineyard, but certainly not in the presence of an Irish elk, okay? So this is important to remember. Saul's own later imprisonment, this is why the history matters, his imprisonment as an apostle for Christ, it contrasts with these two views of the followers. So we're led to this spot now, right? We're led to this spot where Stephen's apology of righteousness shows that the truth of, if you remember the martyred missionary Jim Elliot. Jim Elliot said, he is no fool who gives what he cannot keep to gain what he cannot lose. The idea's time was now. The explosion was set off by the spark that Stephen brought in. Why? Because if you remember earlier, we skipped this verse, but before he's brought to the council, 
they look at him and his, his face shone like an angel. Can you think of another person in the Bible who encountered people after an encounter with God whose, whose face shone like an angel? Moses. And, and they knew this. And Stephen plays on this. And it never talks about his face not shining again through his whole defense. So you're forced in this big coliseum to look at this guy who's glowing, who's reflecting your own sin, and is, is literally destroying every argument you have. They have no response. They have no argument. They have no logic. They have no hope, but they have violence, believing that violence will silence the message. Is that true? No. Because of what happens here in verse 4, therefore, those who had been scattered went about preaching the word. Church, you have to get this. There is a time and a place in every person's life when you come face to face with something that you have to decide, am I willing to die for this? All right? People in the military, firefighters, police officers, it's a very real thing. And I will tell you, there numerous times, and I've shared some of these stories before, where I have been in situations and I've looked at my, my buddy and gone, this is it. And we don't even say a word and we just run to do our duty. And the Lord provided for us and our protection. We recognized we could die. We were willing to stand firm for what we believed. How much more so should I stand firm for what I know to be the truth of my salvation? Your ministry first is to that truth, vertical. You want to die for something? It better be something that's worth dying for. Stand firm for the truth of the gospel. If you're married, love your spouse. Love your spouse. If you have children, love your children. Debbie, pray for that. That's your ministry order. Do not come blinded believing, if I just go out and tell a million people about Jesus, then my family will understand. They will not. You will be held accountable to that. You are not standing firm. You're giving into the culture. Now let's take you off message. The message is here first. As Scott McAllister would say, check your pulse. Check your pulse, church. Do you know your connection? What are you willing to stand firm and die for? Stephen knew, as I close, that his path was to boldly defend Jesus and his gospel anywhere, any place, anytime. He walked into there with his face glowing, I believe, white space. He knew he was going to die. He knew he was going to die. People are like, oh, he knew at the end he was going to die when he saw Jesus. No, he didn't. He knew he was going to die when he walked in there. And he did so anyway. What kind of person does it take to do that? Well, I'll tell you, a Christian. It takes a Christian man or woman to walk in there. This is the kind of gospel confidence, you guys, that we're going to investigate building going through that foundation study. This is the stuff that the gospel conversation through the summer are going to kick off. His response to persecution was to glorify God. While the response from the Sanhedrin on hearing the truth was to horrify God. What can we take from this?